Well, it's good to be uh, together again this evening and, and finish the world's uh, shortest sermon series. Uh, two sermons on the, the same text in, in one day. And uh, what we're doing this evening is we're going to see David go from the big picture of creation as he drives into this prayer to draw more and more closely reflecting on God's word uh, and then his response uh, to, to God's word, to having personally experienced the, the character of God revealed in the word and what that causes David to see about himself as he encounters a personal covenanting God who he sees needs to be his rock and his redeemer. It's from Psalm 19, starting in verse 7 through the end of the psalm in verse 14. This is the holy, inerrant, and inspired word of the Lord to us this evening. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous, all to be together. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his heirs? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Will you pray with me? Hey, Father, we thank you for your word to us this evening. Uh, we pray that you would uh, work in and through us by your spirit to uh, hear it, and not only to hear it, but to be changed and transformed uh, by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want you to imagine uh, that you... Uh, are going uh, out to a restaurant uh, for dinner, and when you first get there, you you notice that there's a couple uh, sitting in the booth together, and you, you can tell that they're just they're dressed up for a date. Uh, and you go and you get your table close to them, and you order, you start to get your food, uh, and then you notice something strange. You've not heard this couple say a single word to each other the whole time you've been there. They're not talking to each other. Uh, it, it's strange. So now you start to wonder, maybe there's something wrong in their relationship. Nothing good will happen if they don't talk to each other. Of course, nothing controversial can happen if they don't talk to each other. Maybe they used to talk in the past. Uh, now to avoid controversy, they've decided just to be silent. But of course, nothing life-giving, nothing uh, enjoyable, nothing challenging or transformative can happen in that relationship. Relationships need conversation, dialogue, a sharing of each other's thoughts and hearts. And this is what we have uh, from David uh, this evening. In this prayer to the Lord, he is in dialogue with God. David is praying 
for a reason. He started big and then he drives inward to the very relationship he has with God because of the word and how the word reveals sin in his heart, his need for redemption. So we see in uh, these verses that David has uh, two main ideas that he meditates on. He meditates on the nature and the delightfulness of the word in verses 7 through 11. And also he has this prayer for redemption in response to this revelation in verses 12 through 14. So the nature and delight of the word and then the prayer for redemption and the response. Look with me first in verses 7 through 9. And what we see here, there is six uh, terms for Scripture, and there's also six effects of Scripture that impact the whole of us. There's the law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandments, the fear, the rules. And God's word is perfect. It's sure. It's right. It's pure. It's clean. It's true. And it produces this reviving, making wise, rejoicing, enlightening the eyes. It endures forever and it produces righteousness altogether. Now what you need to note is that a person's character is revealed to us by the way they speak. And the same is true for God. God's character is self-revealed to us in his word. So let's look more closely at the character of the word, but as we go through this, we'll see it reflected in the character of the God who gave us this word. So first, the law of the Lord, the Torah of Yahweh, it revives the soul. And when you read of law in the Bible, it can mean several things. Uh, It might specifically mean the law given at Sinai. It could mean Deuteronomy. It could mean the Ten Commandments. Uh, Or at times, it can represent the whole of Scripture. Uh, But David, I think, may be thinking a little more specifically of of the Ten Commandments when he says this. Uh, But no matter which aspect of the law David's thinking about, this law is from a relational, covenant-making God who draws near to set his people apart so that, they can, that he can be a God to them and they will be a people unto him. That's the context that the law comes to us in the Bible is through that covenant relationship. Well, let's think about the, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are perfect, flawless, according to this. The instructions for the tabernacle for Israel in their context was life-giving because it pointed them to the need for a Redeemer. God's record of redeeming his people in Exodus show the sweetness of our redemption. And it's not merely from Pharaoh physically, but we learn from this our need of redemption from Satan's spiritual kingdom. God's law is flawless. It does not mislead. It's consistent. It provides the way of life. It's refreshing and restoring to our souls. And this is what the Bible produces in us. Uh, It reconciles, it restores, it's Uh, feeds us spiritually as the Spirit works with new life breathed into us. The Spirit works through the Word, and He produces in us taking dead hearts and giving life as we're united to Christ. Because Scripture points us ultimately to Christ, who fulfilled the law on our behalf. 
And, it, and the Spirit produces in us that new life, that new uh, fruit in keeping with Christian obedience. And as David writes this psalm, as a king in Israel, he would have copied the entirety of Deuteronomy by hand. So he has copied this law by hand, and he says it is perfect, and I delight in it. Well, when you hear the word law, you also might uh, have an uh, American recoil from over-legislation, perhaps. Or, or maybe, uh, as Americans who are, are steeped in an evangelical culture, our ears are tuned uh, to uh, the dangers of legalism uh, or moralism, which can be very real dangers. But all of these things come to us when we take God's law and we abuse it uh, in a few ways, uh, perhaps uh, in seeing the law as God being miserly towards us, that God's out to get us in some way. Instead of viewing it as a life-giving guide for our doctrine, for our uh, life, for instructions to show us our sin and to show us the true and the good paths to show us what a relationship with God looks like since it reveals the character of God to us. And once we are shown what is good and true and lovely, we can also see from God's word what is sinful, what is displeasing to God. And that drives us to trust in both the work of Jesus on the cross to wash away our sins and the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us to begin living lives according to this law. So we approach scripture never adding to it, never taking away from it, but also never looking to the law for salvation. The law cannot provide us spiritual strength. It must point us to God and his character and to the spirit to give us the strength to live it out. How did David experience the law? I already said he, he would have copied Deuteronomy. He clearly delights in it and sees the goodness of it. Um, aspects of it would have been the holiness codes that he was used to and raised in. He would have been very familiar with which animals were clean or unclean. He would have known all his cleansing rituals and the sacrifices uh, and the sacrificial system, which the author of Hebrews tells us the blood of bulls and goats uh, cannot wash away sin. But in all these things, David uh, is being instructed in types and shadows of anticipation of what his descendant, the Messiah, would do. David is being instructed in his need for a savior, of his need for cleansing, of his need for something to take away his sin and to be a mediator between him and God. So for David, the word in a life-giving way, points him to the need for a Redeemer who he puts his faith and trust in. For David, the law is God coming and saying, I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You have been redeemed. Now here is the way of life. Worship me alone. Worship me how I desire. Honor me and receive my name. Now go in Treat your parents this way, your neighbors this way. Do not murder, do not steal. Uh, live in this wise and true and good way because you are my people. So we see as David 
moves through his description of the scriptures. He says six things. And in the Psalms and in Hebrew poetry, we often put things in parallel next to each other. So David is saying nearly the same thing six times. There's differences. And we could unpack the precise differences a little bit more. But I think it's also good just to see the sum and the whole of how these things fit together, what they have in common with each other. So in its entirety, this law, this testimony is able to make the simple wise. He already said they're life-giving and refreshing. Now he says the scriptures give wisdom. And David has experienced the removing of the naivety of his sin as well. Wisdom wisdom takes a person from uh, simplicity in viewing their heart, of obliviousness to it, of easily being uh, self-centered and and blind to our own hearts, and it sheds light and wisdom to us. So in, in the 1800s, people in the Midwest learned to read in two different ways. Uh, they had two things uh, to learn to read. They had the Bible as their primary means, and they had a Sears catalog, usually. The Bible and a Sears catalog. But when it comes to wisdom, who was wiser in that day? The highly educated person who had much knowledge and a city education? Or might it perhaps have been the person whose entire Life and education was shaped by the Bible and the Sears catalog. The Bible makes us wise. It gives us true knowledge. It makes us the truly wise person. And whole families and communities are blessed when a person finally has the word impact their lives. Whole families, whole communities are harmed by the curse of biblically illiterate fools if we're to flip this on its head so the bible provides wisdom it also causes rejoicing there is a joy in living being transformed and living how we are built and called to live and we know that most truly as god gives us to us in his word and very quickly verses uh, traits four through six uh, we hear of this pure commandment singular the pure commandment enlightens our eyes the scriptures the commandments of the lord is uh, a unity there's a purity and a unity to the scriptures well how do we summarize the commandments of god as just one commandment well jesus takes deuteronomy 6 4 and Leviticus 19, and he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. It's pure. We cannot filter it through our own human judgments. You cannot chop up God's word and cherry pick what parts you'll take and what parts you will not take. To, do, to cherry pick the Bible is to do harm to loving God and loving our neighbor. And certainly we should be like Peter was taught. 
that there are the, the ceremonial foods, the, the types and the shadows, the sacrificial law, the tabernacle, these things uh, pass away as Jesus fulfills them. So we don't flatten out Revelation. We see the differences between the New and the Old Testament. We also don't exaggerate these things. There is still a moral law, and the moral law was the same yesterday, today, and forever. So our understanding of many sins come to us from the Old Testament in its greatest detail. But just as we also know not eating selfish was part of the dietary law of God, we also see that there is an abiding beauty and purity to God's moral revelation to us in the law. And what we learn from it is God is holy and we are not. There is a great and a glorious God whose perfect holiness and goodness is displayed in the scriptures. And we need to have a clean, a pure, and an awestruck fear of God produced by them. And this brings David, and it should bring us to a humbled state where God is centered and all-encompassing to us. And we can only say that all the rules, the decisions, the ruling, the measurements of God are true, righteous, and just forever. Truth is constant. It endures. It does not shift. It does not change with each generation. God's word is constant and consistently true. And this should actually revive the soul, rejoice the heart, and enlighten our eyes is not just cold, hard facts. No, it's a beautiful experience to be fed and valued. David uses the imagery of gold and honey, not just describing what the word of God is like, but how desirable it is. Look with me at verses 10 and 11. The value and benefit of the word is it's desirable. It warns us. He says, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Scripture is like honey. Or think of baklava or the chicken minis with the little honey drizzle on them. But why this image? David is saying it's like you are getting food. Your enjoyment of it is coming like honey. But it's also like gold. But gold can be tricky. Uh, There is such a thing as fool's gold. Uh, There is such a thing as high fructose corn syrup, even though it's sweet. So you need something that has purity and truth to it that actually gives you life that actually enlivens and gives your heart life that actually nourishes every culture every religion uh, attempts to create and replicate some sort of high fructose corn syrup and some sort of imitation gold to get its hands on we create idols so we need truly the word of god We need the God who made us, who knows us, so that we don't get a distorted message. Something that is truly enriching, truly enjoyable and desirable for what it really 
is. And we often think that desire uh, is a, a bad thing, that we should desire things uh, less. Uh, but what Scripture teaches us is that desire is not bad. It's whether it is a good or a bad into that desire that determines the goodness of it. What is the object of it? What are we setting our hearts and our minds on? If something is a good gift from God, like Scripture, uh, the goodness of his creation, then those are to be desired. But if something is a distortion from the fall, then we need to have a way to discern the difference from the goodness of God's creation and the way things are after the fall has distorted things. So to discern the difference, we need a source to be warned from. So think of the wisdom of Proverbs, warning of the good paths and the life found there versus the treacherous paths and the death that occurs from Lady Folly and Lady Wisdom and that contrast there. Being in God's word warns us, take this good path and live. Take this treacherous path and suffer these types of consequences. In other words, there is a blessing in listening to the word. Why is that? Because the creator knows how his creatures ought to live, how they were ultimately and long-term be happiest and truly blessed. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest, their enjoyment in God. For David, the sweetness of scripture is actually accented and made complete by gaining the warnings from it. He finds value and sweetness in the warnings. Scriptural warnings are a guide into a life that is pleasing to God. And that is as valuable as gold to David. He's not saying the scriptures are sweet, but man, there sure are a lot of warnings. No, he's saying the scriptures are sweet, and what's more, they have helpful warnings for your humble servant. God, thank you for taking the time to warn a sheep like me from running off that cliff. Thank you for not having apathy towards me, but love enough to warn me of the effects of the fall. And what does this do? Well, for David, it drives him to prayer. Look in verses 12 through 14, this response to Revelation. David says, Who can discern his heirs? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Who can discern his heirs? Well, part of being deceived is you don't know you're deceived. So if you take the final authority of Scripture away from you, you become your own final authority. No one will be able to speak into your life. You will form and have your beliefs formed only from your current cultural moment. And since all knowledge and truth comes to you from your own culture, there's no room for correction. You'll be blind to the possibility of error. Well, David says, who can discern his heirs? We need a mirror to show us how we truly are. Scripture acts as this mirror. It reveals to us and allows us to see how we truly are. Have you ever been uh, embarrassingly informed from someone that you smelled? That you needed a shower? That actually you have 
gone nose blind to the way you really are. And until we get this somewhat unpleasant and embarrassing correction, we're going to go on not understanding how we are. And this is the power of Scripture. The power of God's law is that it warns us and it draws attention to the uncleanness of sin, to the stinkiness of sin. It should become a sharp stench to our nose. My wife Anna is pregnant with our third child. And I know that inevitably it's coming, probably in the third trimester, uh, the pregnancy nose is going to kick in as she starts to nest. She's going to track down every little smell in the house, everything that she can detect uh, to clean things up and to make things ready for this new child. So this pregnancy nose uh, is unpleasant in a way for her, but it's helpful. It's a gift from God for her to prepare for a child. So we need to ask God for this. God, make my nose sensitive to the sin in my life so I'm actually nauseated by it. So that I'm driven to uh, take it out of my life. So we're great at sniffing out the sin in other people, but we need help from the Lord, help from Scripture to smell it out in our own lives. And how comforting before you go out to know, yes, indeed, I am squeaky clean, innocent in our Father's eyes. In fact, in Christ, I smell good. I'm a pleasing aroma to God the Father because I have the assurances and the promises of Christ's blood and the wisdom of the knowledge of what sins are still in my life because of Scripture. I'm aware of my errors because God speaks to me continually in his word. Well, this awareness of sin that Scripture gives allows David to take the next step in his prayer. He says, keep me from the sins you just revealed to me, Lord. Look in verse 13. David asks for preservation from presumptuous sins. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Uh, In Numbers chapter 15, uh, Moses speaks about uh, presumptuous sins versus uh, sins that are done out of ignorance. And he says there's actually a greater gravity to the person who sees sin, knows that it's sin, and runs headlong into it than for the person who sins, yes, but they did it out of ignorance. Well, David says, I see my sin more clearly. Now, what am I going to do about it? He says, I don't want to arrogantly and high-handedly run into this. So Lord, help me. Gives me strength to flee it, to be preserved from it. Because David knows that we are creative at justifying our sin. We are excuse-making machines. Uh, Business owners can knowingly justify abuse of their employees. Employees can justify stealing time from their bosses or improperly doing work. Uh, Family members, we can justify how we uh, treat each other because we know our siblings can push our buttons. So, of course, I got angry. They know how to push my buttons. Any sin, you name it, we can explain it away. And given enough time and effort, we can twist and try to make scripture sound like it agrees with us. David pleads, Lord, keep me from 
the self-justification of presumption. And we do not know when this psalm was prayed, but it certainly would fit well with David after his sin with Bathsheba to pray, never again, Lord, do I want to sin against you in this step-by-step knowing way, from seeing to taking to murdering. And how is it that the Lord helped David to become aware of this sin? Well, he sent the prophet Nathan to go ask him uncomfortable questions, to tell him stories, to stir up that righteous indignation against a man who would steal a poor man's final little sheep. So God used other believers to come and proclaim his word. So brothers and sisters, we need to be willing to do two things. We need to be willing to go to one another for help with sin. And secondly, be willing to speak to others about their sin with the motivation of love and the tactfulness of Nathan to actually prick the heart. Not all sin is presumptuous sin. There is hope for loving correction and speaking truth to brothers and sisters and discerning whether someone is doing something out of ignorance or presumption. And the word of God is sweet as honey, but we are warned by it. Our errors are exposed, and we turn to God for help in putting those sins to death. And that is good. David closes his prayer with a hope that's grounded in God as his Redeemer. Verse 14, he says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. David takes comfort in the steadfastness, the unmovingness that God is a rock, that his promises do not change. He is a certain salvation. He is his Redeemer. He knows he needs a new heart. He knows he needs a Redeemer and that God is the only and certain refuge for salvation. David knows these things in part, in shadow, but we know these things in full. We can know and meditate on the truths that the word was made flesh, that he dwelled among us, that Jesus is living, that he lived, that he died, and that he rose again for us. The word fully and finally revealing God to us. David knew in part, but the fullness of God's revelation has come in Christ Jesus. So do you, like David, see your need for a redeemer? Do you recognize that that Redeemer is Jesus? Has the law of God acted as a mirror exposing your sin and need of him? Has it plowed and tilled up and revealed the sin that is in your heart? If not, you encounter him through scripture, through places like John's gospel, where we encounter Jesus and know God as our father. If you do know Jesus as your Redeemer, then Through the word made effective by his Holy Spirit, he has given you new hearts, new affections. And the Holy Spirit will continue to work in your heart and your mind to transform you more every day into the image of Christ. And he intends for this to be done in his word by his spirit in the community of God's people. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that our Redeemer 
lives, that he has walked upon the face of the earth, and that in Christ we have a great high priest who ever lives to intercede for us, that he has poured out his spirit on our hearts. Lord, show us our hearts through your word. Help us, Lord, to delight in your word as honey, to feed on it regularly, to be renewed and enlivened with the wisdom that comes through knowing you uh, through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name.